Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 435 for March 22nd, 2015. This week, photography has changed a lot in the past few decades, and you might have fun going back to look at some older images. Automating routine, repetitive actions has always been one of my primary objectives, perhaps because I'm lazy. If you are too, let's look at some programs that'll help. In short circuits, a look at Microsoft's changing business model, Premira says that it has exposed personal information that belongs to 11 million users. 11 million users. And Kaspersky wants to help you protect your Android device. In spare parts only on the website, Malwarebytes describes an old scam in a new suit. News site GigaOM is dead. And ubiquitous high-speed fiber is the future and may always be the future. Some photographers have an odd way of looking at technology. Auto-anything is condemned for at least a few years, but eventually it's accepted. During the 1970s, I worked as a photographer, and I was an early adopter of 35mm cameras for jobs that some of the traditionalists insisted should be photographed with 120 roll film or even 4x5 sheet film. Through-the-lens metering had been invented in the 1960s, but many photographers continued to insist on using handheld meters well into the 1980s. In the late 1970s, Polaroid developed a camera that was able to focus itself automatically. Canon followed with an autofocus system of sorts for 35mm cameras in 1981, but it was Minolta that had the first really successful autofocus system for SLRs when it released the Dynax Maxim 7000 in 1985. Some photographers insisted that they could focus better and faster than the camera could. Minolta eventually stopped making cameras, but autofocus lived on, and most photographers now understand that it is usually faster and more accurate than they are, particularly in low-light situations. Flash auto-exposure arrived, was rejected, and then accepted by photographers who realized that the system was faster and generally more accurate than they could be. And digital cameras. Early digital cameras were expensive and the resolution was lousy, but that was quickly resolved. Today's digital cameras, from relatively inexpensive devices to cameras and phones to cameras that cost tens of thousands of dollars, they all compete successfully with film. A lot of the time these days I use the program mode and save images in raw format for my digital camera. The program mode is generally accurate, or at least close enough, that I can make any needed adjustments after taking the images. The key for me is recognizing when the automatic system won't interpret the scene properly, and when that happens I switch to full manual operation. There really isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. Sometimes autofocus isn't appropriate. Sometimes auto-exposure isn't appropriate. Sometimes digital isn't appropriate although increasingly I'm finding it very difficult to identify situations where film would be the right choice. 
Photography is part science and part art. Both parts are important, but it seems to me that art should take the lead. If the image you've created, film or digital, monochrome or color, natural light or flash, straight or modified, if that image pleases you, and if it communicates the message you wanted to communicate, then it's a success. In the days when I was still going to school to learn about photography, tone photographers were derided. The derision was appropriate then, it is appropriate now. Tone simply means technique only, nothing else. And tone referred to photographers who set up their equipment so that they could repeat exactly the same image, time after time, regardless of who was in front of the camera. One of the primary advantages that digital photography gives us is the ability to experiment for free. Each shutter click with a film camera costs at least 50 cents, several dollars for sheet film, so experimentation was limited. Today, you can take one or 1,000 photos for exactly the same cost. But too many photographers, both professionals and amateurs, still have the cost-per-picture mindset. Get rid of those thoughts. Experiment. You might be amazed by some of the images you can create. And experimentation doesn't end with the camera. Photoshop and other digital editing tools were also the subject of scorn at one time from the professional photographers, but based solely on advertisements that I see these days in magazines aimed at both amateurs and professionals, those days are long gone. In fact, what happens in the electronic darkroom can go a long way toward helping you realize your vision for a photograph. Revisit some of your older pictures. Digital photography's been around for long enough that some people have 10 years or more of digital images. Or have your old negatives and slides scanned. Then take a look at them with thoughts about how you might improve them. I found a photo that showed me with a fish sometime in the 1950s. I presume that I had caught the fish, but it seems that I would have preferred to be holding a cat instead of a fish. You'll see the original picture on the TechBiter Worldwide website, Without a doubt, my father took that picture with Kodachrome film on an Argus C3 rangefinder camera. The image wasn't quite straight. He was an electrical contractor, after all, not a photographer. And there are some exposure problems. Kodachrome never was very forgiving about overexposure. So I started by cropping the image a bit and straightening the horizon. The fish is still pretty badly overexposed. In fact, the fish was so badly overexposed that nothing really can be done to save it. But I wanted to see what I could do to improve the image. At this point, I was working in Adobe Lightroom. So I added some graduated filters to darken the corners a bit in the background. And I managed to tone down the fish a bit, add a little bit of detail. There wasn't much that could be done with it because it was so overexposed that there were no details left in part of it. But where there were details, I was able to pull up some additional information. Having improved the image, I thought I'd have some fun with Alien Skin's Exposure 7, and I used the Lo-Fi Holga filter. The Holga, it's a brand of camera, a medium format camera using 120 roll film, made in Hong Kong, known for low fidelity images caused by a low quality lens. The images from a Holga often have unintended vignettes, blurs, light leaks, and other distortions. The camera's limitations have actually brought it a cult following among some photographers, and Holga photos have won awards in competitions for art and news photography. So, on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see what the image might have looked like had my father been holding a Holga instead of an Argus. 
And then I decided to step a little bit further back into history using Silver Effects Pro. Silver Effects used to be a Nick filter, but Nick is now owned by Google. So I created a monochrome image. Then I flipped back over to Alien Skin and their Snap Art 4 program. I particularly like the stylized effect. On this image, it's a little bit much, though, for the entire image. I'd like the background to be stylized, but I'd like to keep the fish and me just normal. Well, the best way to achieve that is in the full version of Photoshop. So I opened the image in which I had corrected the exposure and then added another layer with that stylized effect from Alien Skin's SnapArt 4. Then I created a mask so that I could look through the stylized layer to the image behind it and applied invisibility to the fish and to me. You'll see the result on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I can't say it's a great photograph. I can say that it may or may not be better than the original, it all depends on your opinion, but it does achieve my vision of what the day was. It could, of course, be better, and maybe it will be. Perhaps I'll pull it out again and work on some other day. And looking a little beyond photography, this isn't routine digital photography per se, but the digital revolution brings advantages to other activities too. Dental x-rays no longer need film. Instead, the dental technician places a sensor where the film would have gone, and the x-ray image is available instantly. And it gets even better. Film-based x-rays show the tooth at its actual size. Digital x-rays can be enlarged, and they can be printed. As it turned out, I needed a root canal, the first I'd ever had. In referring me to an endodontic specialist, the dentist asked one of the office workers to print the x-ray image. On paper, my tooth measures about six inches from top to bottom. Being able to see an enlarged view of the problem area must be helpful to dentists. And as it further turned out, I didn't need a root canal. The endodontist performed a few tests and then said, You don't need a root canal. I'm going to refer you to a periodontist. The periodontist will see me again next week, once I've finished with the antibiotics and after I've concentrated on flossing, the way my dental hygienist keeps telling me to do. And all of that certainly qualifies as too much information. I have to admit something, I'm lazy. Whenever I encounter a task that I have to do more than a few times, I look for a way to automate it. Computers are really good when it comes to doing the same thing over and over. When that happens to me, I just get bored. Three applications, two of them without cost, can automate just about anything your computer can do. That they can all do many of the same things makes them similar but not identical. Each has a different approach that will appeal to a different type of person. Macro Express, Auto Hotkey, and Auto IT all have ways to automate actions. Each has strengths, and perhaps more important, each has a different way of interacting with the user. Macro Express, for example, uses a fill-in-the-blanks approach. Auto IT comes with a specialized editor, and Auto Hotkey works with any text editor. Auto IT's code looks a lot like Visual Basic. Auto IT's code looks a lot like Visual Basic, 
while Auto Hotkey looks a bit like a cross between Perl and JavaScript. Macro Express doesn't let the user see the code because it displays markers and forms in its own proprietary editor. Although I've used Macro Express for many years, I wanted to see what else is available, and I found that all three of the applications have features that I like. As with Auto IT and Auto Hotkey, Macro Express is a Windows application that automates functions such as filling out web forms, opening programs, and performing mouse clicks. The proprietary language used to control the application includes support for variables, if-then-else logic, loops, and other functions such as controlling the size and shape of program windows, interacting with the interface, and the ability to start a macro when some external event occurs. This is also true for the other applications. Unlike AutoHotKey and AutoIT, MacroExpress includes the ability to record a user's actions, both keystrokes and mouse clicks. Recorded processes often need significant editing before they can be used. MacroExpress is available in two versions, MacroExpress for $40, MacroExpress Pro with some additional features for $60. The company also offers short keys for $25, and Keyboard Express for $30. You'll find a chart on the Macro Express website that illustrates all the differences. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The Macro Express programming language includes hundreds of commands that can automate nearly anything the computer can do. For example, you may have invoice files that need to be emailed to clients once a month. A Macro Express function could read in a list of client names, email addresses, and file names, open your email program, create a new message that contains text referring to the invoice and has the invoice file attached. It could then address the message, fill in the subject line, and place the finished message in an outbox. A macro like that would save you a lot of time. After all, it types faster than people can type. And it would reduce errors, typos, and incorrect attachments, for example. One thing that none of the applications I'm describing can do, though, is run in the background. Each must have access to the computer's control surface, the user interface, keyboard, and mouse. So if the user clicks the mouse or types on the keyboard while the macro is running, the result isn't going to be very good. Macro Express offers three methods for creating macros. More than two dozen quick wizards guide you through a series of questions and then build the macro. You can use the Capture Macro application to record keystrokes and mouse movements, this prepares a script that the user will probably need to edit. And then there's the full editor. It can be used to create a macro directly. The editor is a better choice for longer and more complicated macros because it organizes commands for easy editing. Each command is placed on its own line. If you're interested, you'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website where you can download a trial version of Macro Express. Although AutoIT and AutoHotKey have similarities, there are some substantial differences. AutoIT is undoubtedly the better tool for those who need to work directly with the operating system, initially intended to automate the process of setting up computers in a corporate environment. AutoIT has been expanded well beyond that starting point. Version 3 marked a distinct difference from versions 1 and 2, which were statement-driven and intended mainly to simulate user interaction. Starting with version 3, AutoIT's programming language looks a lot like Visual Basic, which allows it to claim the status of a general-purpose, third-generation programming language. 
The Auto IT data model can store several types of data, including arrays. If you have an older computer, though, it's worth noting that version 3, which was released in 2008, does not support operating systems older than Windows 2000. Auto IT offers the option to convert its scripts into standalone executable files. That means the macro can be run on computers where Auto IT is not installed. User-defined function libraries are available on the Auto IT website. You can use those to expand the application's capabilities. Although users can create and edit scripts in any text editor, Auto IT includes an integrated development environment based on the free site editor, which has direct links to the Auto IT compiler and to its help files. If you're interested in this one, yes, there is a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website that allows you to download Auto IT. Not a trial version, it's free. And there's Auto Hotkey. If you like minimalist approaches, be sure to take a look at this one. You won't find any menus on the interface. That's because there is no interface. Write a script, link it to Auto Hotkey, and it'll do one of two things. It'll either display an error message as it's being interpreted, or it'll run. This is probably the best choice if your goal is to create keyboard replacements. For example, I type TBWW, and it automatically expands to TechBiter Worldwide. It can perform more complex tasks, of course, but the text replacement function, from which it gets the name Hotkey, is easy enough to learn that any user will understand the syntax immediately. By default, hotkey replacements are case-insensitive, meaning that if I type TBWW in all lowercase letters, or all uppercase letters, or some combination of upper and lowercase letters, they'll be replaced by TechBiter Worldwide. But I might prefer to keep TBWW if I type it in all caps without having it be replaced by the macro. You can make the hotkey replacement case-sensitive. The application itself is tiny, and therefore it's fast, because there is no user interface, AutoHotkey doesn't need various code libraries. After all, the only task it needs to perform involves watching the keyboard to detect when you've pressed a magic sequence of keys. Now, that functionality will cause some antivirus applications to flag it as dangerous. In fact, I had that happen with Avast, which wouldn't even allow me to download the file until I disabled Avast. Avast claims to be aware of the false positive and says that it will be corrected in the next version. Avast probably isn't the only protective application that will throw a false error, and AutoHotkey isn't the only download that'll provoke one. Any application that monitors keystrokes is automatically considered to be suspect. AutoHotkey isn't limited to just replacing keystrokes, of course. It can run programs, manipulate program windows, and send keystrokes or mouse clicks to the operating system or to applications. It can also create, modify, and delete files. And as with AutoIT, AutoHotkey can convert its scripts to executable programs so they can be used by people who don't have the program installed. AutoHotkey author Chris Mallett had proposed integrating hotkey support into version 2 of AutoIT. The proposal didn't gain enough support from users, so Mallett developed his own program, calling it AutoHotkey. It was based on AutoIT version 2's syntax, and it uses AutoIT version 3's compiler. Although it is still offered as freeware, AutoHotkey is no longer open source. If you're interested in AutoHotkey, yes, there is a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Which automation system do you need?
if you need any at all. Well, that'll depend on what you want to do with it and how you prefer to work. Those who are looking primarily to create hotkey text replacements should first take a look at Auto Hotkey. Those who need more robust capabilities will be better served by either Auto IT or Macro Express. Auto IT would be the better choice for those who prefer to stick their hands in the actual code, and Macro Express would be the right selection for those who want a more visual approach and have a few dollars to spend. In short circuits, for decades, the largest income segment for Microsoft was software, operating systems, and even more important, the Office suite. Microsoft has largely fended off challengers from open source operating systems and Office suites. Apple hasn't been able to get any really significant traction in offices. But that doesn't mean Microsoft will continue to be king of the desktop. Dinosaurs were huge and fearsome. But in the end, it was the little mice who won the battle for survival. Microsoft clearly understands that times are changing. The question is whether Microsoft can change fast enough to survive. The upcoming Windows 10 release is the most obvious indicator so far of what's coming. Users of Windows 7, 8, and 8.1 will be able to upgrade to Windows 10 without charge. And in addition, computers that are upgraded within a year of when version 10 is released will continue to receive Windows updates for the life of the computer. This week, Microsoft announced that users in China would receive upgrades at no cost, even if they are using pirated copies of Windows. Former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer often complained that only about 10% of Windows installations in China were legitimate. Changing to a system that licenses an operating system to a computer simplifies the process considerably. And now it's time to think about the future of the Office applications. Cloud-based systems are becoming increasingly attractive, and the pricing model for applications on portable devices is challenging Microsoft's old policies. Many applications for portable devices are sold for just a few dollars. They never expire, and they can be used without additional charge on all of the devices the user owns. That's not likely to be a viable option for Microsoft. The company is making the main office suite components available on portable devices without charge. An even better example, and one that directly relates to operating systems for computers, is the way operating systems are sold with portable devices. The small phone or tablet comes with an operating system, and in most cases the operating system updates are simply pushed out without any need for action by the user. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. Very few owners of Android phones or tablets are running version 5 of the operating system right now. Most of us are still on version 4.4.4. Why? Well, various device providers need to add their individual bloatware before they make the new version available to users. It's annoying, but that's the way it is. Or if you own a Chromebook, updates to that operating system are downloaded and installed automatically whenever you reboot the computer. 
If you buy a new Windows computer on a portable device, anything with a screen smaller than 9 inches diagonally, the operating system is free, or perhaps more accurately, included in the price. Chromebooks could well be viewed by Microsoft as dinosaurs viewed mice, but they are a fundamental threat to larger computers. They're fast enough to handle the kinds of tasks that most users need, email, web browsing, letters, spreadsheets, and a list or two. Microsoft is moving more into the hardware arena, which is where Apple has been from the beginning. Apple built hardware long before it built operating systems, and hardware is still the key to Apple's success. Increasingly, it appears to be Microsoft's vision, too. If Primera Blue Cross looks a bit under the weather these days, it probably has something to do with the millions of customer records that have been exposed to thieves, personal identification information, financial information, and medical information. Primera says that the security flaw has been corrected and that they are working to improve their security procedures. The attack occurred on May 4, 2014, and yes, that's nearly a year ago. Premier didn't discover the break-in until January 29th of this year. Premier says 11 million customer records are at risk. Those customers whose information is at risk subscribe to Primera Blue Cross, Primera Blue Cross Blue Shield of Alaska, Vivacity, or Connection Insurance Solutions. A statement on the company's website says the investigation found the attackers may have gained unauthorized access to name, date of birth, email address, address, telephone number, social security number, member identification numbers, bank account information, and claims information, including clinical information. Even if you're a member of another Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, your information is at risk if you received treatment in Washington or Alaska. If there's good news, though, it's this. Primera says that it has no evidence that suggests any information was actually stolen or used. If this story sounds kind of familiar, it was just a few weeks ago that Anthem, another big Blue Cross Blue Shield provider, said that a breach of their network exposed information for as many as 80 million people. Primera says letters will be mailed to those whose information has been exposed. The company has explicitly stated that it will use postal mail to communicate with subscribers and says that customers should not reply to emails claiming to be providing information from Primera about the break-in. Kaspersky Lab has released a new free Android app that they say can protect both the portable device and the data on it. Found, P-H-O-U-N-D, Found. That's a portmanteau of phone and hound, so now you know. Found will find your phone or tablet, or at least it'll try to. 
And if it can't help you to recover the device, you can at least use it to delete all of the data on the device. If your device goes missing, you can first try to find it on a map using GPS, GSM, or Wi-Fi networks. Then you can have the phone take a picture on the off chance that you might capture an image of the thief or some clue about exactly where it is. Or if you think you just misplaced the phone or tablet at home, turn on the alarm so you can find it. Still no luck? Well, then you can display a message on the device's screen. And as a last resort, you can tell Found to delete everything on the device. Smartphones and tablets are pretty easy to lose. They're also easy to steal. Making the situation even worse, most of us have information stored on these devices that we really wouldn't want to have a finder or thief to have. Kaspersky Found is available from the Google Play Store, and it works with Kaspersky Lab's other free and paid mobile products. Senior Product Manager Alexei Chikov says that because so many users store important information on portable devices, smartphones and tablets need the same security as a bank vault. The problem is that unlike bank vaults, which are heavy and not very mobile, smartphones are light and highly portable. In spare parts only on the website, Malwarebytes describes an old scam in a new suit, news site GigaOM is dead, and ubiquitous high-speed fiber is the future, and may always be the future. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.